welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Aaron Matek. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm great. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And as always, a reminder that if you become a useful idiot at usefulidiots.substack.com, you get all kinds of bonus content, the extended interviews that we do every single week. Also, uh, the chance to ask us questions in our Useful Idiots comment board, the Absurd Arena. And you get full access to our Thursday Throwdown your midweek dose of media madness, all the funny clips that happen after Monday morning. We make fun of them uh, to the best that we can. So join us at usefulidiots.substack.com. Yes, please do. And what do we got from the Absurd Arena this week, Wilson? So this week on the Absurd Arena, we got some really thoughtful responses from Useful Idiots from these two questions that we asked. And the first was, what do you do to escape the nonsense of news and constant media? And people were talking about how they listen to music or do yoga or get into swimming or especially find comedy to distract them. And a lot cited useful idiots as their big comedy to get out of the way. So what do you guys do to escape the nonsense? What do I do? Uh, I've been really actively listening to this podcast called The Dollop, which I really like. It's hosted by Dave Anthony. Uh, who hosts uh, the West Wing thing and the audit podcast. He co-hosts those podcasts with Josh Olson, but he also hosts another podcast called The Dollop, which he hosts with Gareth Reynolds, uh, which is the the conceit of it is each week, Dave Anthony tells Gareth Reynolds a story from U.S. history, and Gareth Reynolds has no idea what it's about, and he just reacts to it. And so I've been listening to that because I feel like I learned from it, but it's also really funny. But it, it's a little it's pretty addictive. And I went back to the very beginning of it and started listening. They started in 2014. So I have a lot of dollop episodes on my plate. And uh, it may be distracting me too much because I, I usually try to listen to podcasts about the news. And I've been a little derelict because I've been dollop addicted. <laughs> so I guess that's the answer. That's what I do. Distract myself. Listen to the dollop. The dollop. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I don't really escape the news. I live the news. I breathe the news. I am the news. So, but uh, when I do take a little break, yeah, music, you know, sports, like I, I played basketball the other day and what I was reminded about it was like, when you're playing something like that, you can't think about anything else. Right. It forces you to be fully focused on what you're doing. And I fully present, fully present. That's pretty cool. And then of course I can't walk the next day because my back hurts, but oh, uh, right. so that's sort of a downside, but well, yeah, then you're distracted like by pain. You can't really think I'm about politics because you're thinking yes. about the pain yeah. you're in. Yeah. No, I've been doing some bar classes, B-A-R-R-E, which is just a way of exercising. That's not actually ballet. A lot of people think it's a ballet class because you're at a ballet bar, mm-hmm. but it's not. And I really like it. I've heard great things about bar. People like that. Yeah, I really pole like classes too. People do pole. I haven't well. done that. Pole, yeah, that's a well. That's now tough. that you brought that up, we're gonna definitely have to do this. Certain isn't that terrible since you brought up pole class, pole dancing. Okay, oh, that's a yeah. little preview. All yeah, right. a little preview. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, and also I'm a I'm a major comedy fan. I listen to, com- <laughs> to I listen to every stand up special that I can, and yeah, uh, yeah. that's a great escape. What's the next question, Wilson? So the next question we asked, and this is something I've been thinking a lot this week with Monday morning and all of the news we look at. We asked. Is being informed actually important or does it merely lend importance to the people in charge? It's a good question, but it's a very personal choice. I know, you know, some friends of mine are not informed at all by choice because they just don't have the time and it weighs too heavy on them. They just, they feel as emotionally drained by following everything. So it's really a personal choice whether it's important or not to you to be informed. If you're not informed, I don't think there's anything morally wrong about that whatsoever. Uh, I think it's just a completely, completely one's own individual decision. 
I mean, I don't know if I could marry you if you're not informed. In case that's uh, in case anyone's worried about where I come down on that as a litmus test. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's like I, don't, I was going to say it's sometimes I'm tempted to judge people like there's so much terrible stuff happening. You got to be informed, but there's too much terrible stuff to be informed about. So I can't really say that because who am I? I don't know all the terrible things. So um, if you can be informed, if you if it won't drive you crazy, do it. I mean, the best way to do it is just by listening to useful idiots, obviously. Yes. Be informed and entertained. Exactly. Yeah. Best of both worlds. All righty. Should we get to the four basic food groups? Let's do it. So this week, I Democrats suck. And uh, look, the the big Democrats suck this week. Everyone's talking about is Democrats selling out railroad workers uh, after union members voted uh, to reject the deal that was offered to them, basically Biden and Congress are forcing union workers to take it. And uh, we're going to talk about that today in our interview, uh, where we're joined by two guests uh, to discuss that. So we're going to skip that for Democrats suck this week, even though that is the top contender, uh, and go with Ukraine, because uh, that whole thing's still going on. So this is uh, John Kirby. He is a uh, White House spokesperson. And here he is talking about Democrats' approach to war spending, where more is coming. Uh, Biden has asked Congress for something like $37 billion in additional funding for Ukraine during the lame duck to rush that through before the new Congress comes in. And so this is John Kirby speaking about just how uh, scrupulous Democrats are being in making sure that taxpayers' money is being well spent. Uh, There's been no blank checks here. Everything we've done, we've done in lockstep with Congress, both sides of the aisle and with their support. Uh, And certainly we share the the concerns of many members of Congress about accountability. That's why we're working hard with the Ukrainians to make sure we can get as much visibility and and transparency on on where these systems are going and how they're being utilized. Uh, And the Ukrainians, quite frankly, share that concern as well. So this idea that there's been some sort of blank check that that we've demanded from Congress is just not accurate. So John Kirby says that there's no blank check for Ukraine because it's been bipartisan. But the problem with that is the bipartisan policy is a blank check for Ukraine. Even though Republicans some pretend that they're, you know, trying to hold the administration accountable, they've handed the military industrial complex tens of billions of dollars. There's no way to track these weapons, very little effort made to do so. And so that's what the policy is. Like whether it's uh approved by Congress, it doesn't negate the fact that there's no oversight for it. Uh, And in fact, recall that back when Rand Paul of Kentucky proposed that there be some sort of inspector general to keep track of where all the money's going, uh, that was shot down. So they wouldn't even let him do that. Right. Well, Democrats truly do suck, I guess, for that. And Republicans truly do suck for that. It's a real bipartisan one. It sure is. It sure is. So what do we have for Republicans suck? Okay, so for Republicans suck, well, people probably know that Donald Trump has been uh, taking some heat justifiably for dining with not just Kanye West, prolific anti-Semite Kanye West, but also even more prolific, even more anti-Semitic incel, although there's some controversy about that. You can watch our Monday morning from this week because he may be a voluntary celibate, um, Nick Fuentes. So he's gotten a lot of crap about that. And uh, in his first public comments on widespread criticism of his dinner with West and Fuentes, he said, I gave them the embassy in Jerusalem. So he's trying to tell Jews to calm down. So he's conflating Israel uh, Zionists with Jews. Of course, he always does that. But uh, he's basically saying, 
I'm good to you. Don't worry if I dine with anti-Semites. He's basically trying to justify meeting with anti-Semitic bigots by trying to appeal to anti-Palestinian bigots. Right. Saying, hey, yes. I gave you guys your embassy in Jerusalem. And what's funny about that is, you know, uh, it was recently revealed why exactly Trump gave uh, <laughs> Zionist Jews the embassy in Jerusalem. And it came out in Maggie Haberman's book, uh, who's a reporter for the New York Times about Trump. And she reported this, that basically Trump did this as a quid pro quo to Sheldon Adelson, the late casino uh, billionaire. R.I.P. Uh, who, ga- R- 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 who gave him uh, $20 million uh, for a pro-Trump super PAC. Let's look at that tweet. So this is quoting a uh, New York Times uh, article about Maggie Haberman's book. Later, Haberman writes, Trump accepted a 20 million super PAC contribution from the billionaire Sheldon Adelson to move the U.S. embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. So 20 million dollars from Sheldon Adelson to the guy who promised to drain the swamp. And that was enough to get him to move the, the embassy. But now, unfortunately, people who dare to be offended by Trump meeting with anti-Semites aren't appreciating what right. Trump gave them right. uh, after he accepted $20 million from Sheldon Adelson. Yeah. So rude. So ungrateful. <laughs> so that's how Republicans suck. All right. Well, for isn't that weird, we have something. Um, remember a few, uh, I don't know, a, a, a month or so ago, there was a big controversy in the fishing yes. world, the competitive fishing world, where some uh, competitive fishers were found to be stuffing their fish they caught with weights to make them heavier and thus to win the prize. Well, here is a, a real deal catch that cannot be faked. Right. And it's pretty weird. All right. So for people who are just listening, that is a man standing, holding a huge goldfish. Yes. Uh, this is in France. And the uh, fisherman here, Andy Hackett, caught what is believed to be the biggest goldfish in the world ever. Wilson, guess how much. Okay. Don't look at this. Are we showing the tweet? Is it? No. Yes, Wilson. I don't know if you've already seen this. How many pounds do you think that chubby, adorable goldfish weighs? It looks like it's his, at least his full torso, and he's not a small guy. So I'm going to go 150 pounds. Well, you overshot a little bit, but but still, 67 pounds. People, yeah. I like when we're vulnerable. I'm not show, good yeah. at fish weights. Yeah, me neither. I wouldn't have no idea. I just know that because I saw the tweet. But you got I got to say he very kindly not to. I mean, you're doing this is your weird, but I he did throw him back in, which is very nice of him. Oh, of course, you can't keep that goldfish. I mean, well, exactly. Where would you put it? What kind of be funny if you tried to put in a fishbowl? That would not fit in your normal fish tank. No, right. Fish tank. Yeah. Yeah. I guess he could cook it. But how do you cook it? I've never heard of someone eating goldfish. And uh, me neither. I'm glad this actually. I'm glad this guy was not the first. Yeah, me too. It's yeah. really cute and chubby, isn't it? It's a very cute goldfish. It, it really is. It yeah, really I is. would like to. You know how people swim with dolphins? I'd swim with that goldfish. Sure. Yeah, that'd be a friendly yeah. fish to see for sure. Yeah. For sure. All right. Well, that that is indeed weird. And shout out, shout out to British fisherman Andy Hackett. So, Aaron, you brought up pole dancing when we were talking about um, how we uh, unwind, and I brought up bar bar classes. Now, yeah. I don't do pole dancing, but you some you were reminded of pole dancing. And I had a couple of isn't that terribles on my uh, on the docket. And because you brought that up, I decided to go with this one. So let's take a look at this video of a woman who was filmed. Well, doing some unintentional pole dancing. Let's let's show the video. <laughs> 
Okay, so what happened is this is the absolute worst version of pole dancing, says the New York Post. Bonnie Lee Brown was preparing for a night out in Sheffield, England, when things took a turn and she danced her way to an impaled butt cheek. She ended up with three stitches in her butt, but still managed to go out on the town after the accident. Now, the only question left is why would you dance like that to Whitney Houston's The Greatest Love of All? It is pretty great question. That's a great question. I knew you'd appreciate that, Aaron. That's a great question. Whitney fan. So basically what happens is she squats down while dancing inappropriately, not inappropriately per se, but inappropriately to the greatest love of all. I would say that's not the type of dance you do to the greatest love at all. There are other Whitney Houston songs you could dance like that too, but that's not one of them. And as she squats down, she kind of impales herself uh, on a, I don't even know what that is. It looks like a little, a shoe rack. She dipped too low over a shoe rack. She she basically hurt herself on a decorative pole on a shoe rack, which is why you should keep your shoe racks very Spartan and minimalist. You don't need any decorations on your shoe rack. A lot of lessons in this one little incident. Uh, yeah. Don't pole dance to the greatest love of all and, and don't uh, keep a, a shoe rack out in the room like that. And don't dance over a shoe rack. That's for ask, sure. Don't dance anywhere near a shoe rack and really keep your shoe racks to the basics. Yeah. And those were our four basic food groups. We have a great interview for you guys. Uh, we're talking to Michael Paul Lindsay, who is a locomotive engineer for Union Pacific in Pocatello, Idaho. He's been with the company for 17 years. And Maximilian Alvarez, who is the editor-in-chief of the Real News Network and the host of the podcast Working People. He also hosts The Art of Class War on Breaking Points and is the author of The Work of Living, a collection of interviews with workers recorded at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. And Michael Paul and Maximilian are joining us to talk about the railroad controversy where Congress and Joe Biden are trying to push through a contract on railroad workers that many of the workers have rejected. We're going to hear from them about what's going on and what can be done. Let's go to Michael Paul Lindsay and Maximilian Alvarez. so much for joining really excited to be talking to you guys wanted to just start off with asking you how we got here where are we right now and how did we get here all right we're talking with the railroad industry how we ended up getting to a manpower shortage in the rail industry and the railroad industry has always been a a difficult industry to work in it's always been demanding it's it's understandable it's it's always been that way however we've never had a retention problem like we do now we've never had this problem where employees with many years of service are just up and leaving so where this really started this time around was uh, when the railroad stopped caring for the communities and stopped caring for anything besides the operating ratio with their precision scheduled railroading model when they did that, uh, one of the things they did was cut indiscriminately across the system, cutting terminals, cutting employees, cutting maintenance, cutting anything they could. And there was a whole group of people that hired on um, a couple of years before this that were working, thinking they had a good, solid career. And then the railroad goes and chops and furloughs a bunch of these guys, tons of, of guys furloughing them. And a couple of years later, after all the COVID stuff was winding down and keep in mind this all, all these cuts happened well before COVID. So they can't blame that. Um, But after they started recalling all these guys back, uh, they didn't have, they had a single digit retention rate in most parts of the country. 
So these guys didn't come back, which more power to them. You know, the, the company showed the way they felt about them. And so these guys didn't come back. And then the guys that were the people that were working that were left had to bear the burden of everything. They had to they had to work about three or four times as hard in some cases. Just I can't tell you how frustrating it would be to tie up after being gone for two days and tie up first on the lineup to go to work as you tie up. You're, you're literally first on the list to go to work because they're out of people after you've just been gone for two days and just doing that for months and and then not to mention guys that were on regular runs, getting calls at seven, eight, nine, uh, seven, eight, nine times a night, waking them up, asking them to step up on assignments that weren't theirs. Meanwhile, during this time, they imposed this really oppressive attendance policy. Every railroad has their version of it. These attendance policies prevented people from taking time off. Um, and then one other thing I'd, I'd like to mention as well is that in 2004, 2004 to 2007, they had a major hiring boom. It just so happened to align with when major retirements were going along across the industry. And so from 2004 to 2007, they hired lots and lots of people. Um, and they couldn't really, even back then, it's a very difficult, time-consuming job that takes your full dedication. And even back then, they couldn't really find anybody that was 19, 20 years old to hire on. Very few. They found some. I mean, I was in that group of being young. Um, but for the most part, a lot of the guys were, were older, already in their 30s, already had a career, or in their 40s even. Uh, one of the guys in my new hire class was in his early 50s at the time. And so now we're close to 20 years. And so the guys that are still around, they're getting close to leaving and they would have potentially stayed. But instead, a lot of these guys are choosing to exit the industry. They're like, you know, I, I don't like what this industry's become. So they're leaving in mass. And what's going on with contract negotiations and dragging it out for three years definitely uh, has put a bad taste in people's mouths where maybe they'd stay until they were 65. But they're like, no, I'm, I'm leaving as soon as I can. So you're, you're ending up with a slow bleed in the industry where people are just leaving early. And the fact that sick days are such a sticking point. What have the unions been asking for? I mean, like, first of all, what have you gotten when it comes to six day, uh, when it comes to sick days over the years? And what have the unions been asking for? And why has that been such a contentious issue when pretty much every industry allows people some sick days? So why is that such a issue here? Well, we don't have any any paid sick days. We never have. Um, this all came about mainly when the attendance policies came out because the attendance policies would give us a set number of points to use and would penalize you for taking days off. And each day counts differently depending on us if it's a weekend or a weekday or a holiday or a and it was really easy to go over the threshold, especially if you happen to get sick on a weekend, especially since the railroads would count like uh, a Friday as a weekend layoff because, oh, it leads into the weekend or, you know, it was it was um, it was always a gotcha game where they don't want to give you any time off. So that's really where this started to become what the unions were asking for, because before. So how it used to be at the yeah. railroad when I hired on is it was still just, you know, you could, you could always, if you were sick, you could always call up and say, lay me off sick. And back then it was even, you could call, tell them, lay me off sick. And they'd tell you, okay, Mr. Lindsay, uh, call back when you're ready to mark up. Mark up means 
basically getting back on the lineup where you're good to go back out. So call me back when you're ready to mark up. Well, it's it, then it, it was just one of the many changes over the years. They went to this uh, automatic 24 hour markup to where it automatically puts you back on the board after 24 hours, gradually over the years, just getting tighter and tighter and tighter and stingier with, with taking time off until it became, you're straight up asking for permission and they believe that they own a right to your life 24 seven. So that's, that's really where people started to ask for uh, sick days. And then, you know, people are looking at it like we're the only developed nation in the world that doesn't have paid sick days. Also, I got to mention that it, it really is quite offensive that the railroads tried to pull the, you know, federal contractor card. Oh, we're federal contractors. You guys need to go get your COVID shots. But there's an executive order saying that federal contractors have to do paid sick leave. No, we're not subject to that. That's that doesn't apply to the railroad. It's really, really hypocritical. So what what does apply exactly? And it, it really it, it's it's amazing. I feel like maybe we're getting the point across that now Congress has put forward to the table uh, an amendment to the bill that would actually give us paid sick time. And I believe that that could be a huge step for just labor as a whole, because it could start to set a precedent that businesses need to start giving paid sick time to their employees. But the congressional bill is just seven days, right? Yes, seven days. Now, um, officially, the unions were asking for 14 days. Um, but seven days, I mean, that's that's a hell of an improvement versus... Um, what, what, yeah, zero effectively. I mean, it, it at least is showing that we are at least making progress, that they're at least listening, which it didn't feel like they were before. So we'll, we'll see how this goes, but I, I believe that's coming up to a vote today. Yeah. So, um, if, if I can, I'll, I'll hop in and, and kind of provides like take a step back, uh, and provide some additional kind of historical context here for, for viewers and listeners, um, because it's a very, you know, complicated situation to, you know, wrap your brain around. And sadly, uh, you know, our mainstream corporate media has, I think, done a piss poor job over this year and, and in general in kind of providing people with that essential context, which is how you end up with uh, kind of such a, a mess like what we have today. Um, and, you know, I've been covering this story all year at the Real News Network on my podcast, Working People at Breaking Points and stuff. And I, I've learned like the kind of gaps in people's knowledge that need to be sort of addressed up front to them to, for them to have a, a full and accurate picture of how we ended up uh, where we are on the railroads. So everything that that, you know, Michael said, obviously, uh, he knows the industry in and out, I would highly encourage everyone to go listen to any interview he's ever done. Because, uh, you know, he said a lot of really important things. Um, and, you know, what I would add to that, first and foremost, just to kind of really uh, set the table for people is the main thing you need to understand is that labor relations on the railroads are not governed in this country by the National Labor Relations Act like most jobs. They are, in fact, governed by something called the Railway Labor Act. And it's important to understand that because, you know, a century ago, um, workers on the railroads showed 
the robber barons, the capitalist class, and the political establishment, just how much power working people in this country have and how easily they could bring the economy to its knees by striking on the railroads, which workers did. There was the great railroad strike of 1922. There was the Pullman strike of 1894, the great railroad strike of 1877. A lot of, uh, you know, labor's greatest demands, like the eight-hour day, grew out of, you know, the struggle of workers' on the railroads. But anyway, the political and and capitalist uh, establishments um, saw these strikes and they did not like what they were seeing. They did not like how much power workers have. And so that's why in the 1920s, uh, they pushed through the Railway Labor Act, which is a very complex sort of Rube Goldberg uh, system of hurdles that have to be cleared in order for Strikes initiated by the rail unions, the 12 unions that represent, you know, over 100,000 workers on the freight railroad system in this country and the major rail carriers who collectively bargain as a unit or Congress. And so uh, all of the provisions within the Railway Labor Act, we've actually been seeing kind of play out in real time over the past year. That is a big reason why this has been such a long, drawn out process. Keep in mind for everyone watching and listening, contract negotiations between the unions and the rail carriers have been going on for three years at this point, right? And, and you know, you can see why when the rail carriers, i.e. the companies that own the railroads, um, you can see why that they never really felt like they had to bargain in good faith over this entire period because their ace in the back pocket was what we are watching right now. They knew that if we got to this point, Biden and Congress or whoever was president at that time was going to do what um, Bush did in 1992. They were going to uh, appeal to Congress to issue a back-to-work order. They were going to force a tentative agreement down workers' throats and basically you know, like uh, call the ball game there. And so this has been a long drawn out process whereby the rail carriers have not been addressing, you know, the issues that uh, Mike Paul laid out. Um, they've been stalling at the bargaining table. And then uh, as per the provisions in the Railway Labor Act, um, negotiations, uh, there there was a federal mediator that was brought in this spring. That mediator could not broker an agreement between the two sides and officially declared an impasse in the early summer. That triggered another provision in the Railway Labor Act, whereby there was a 30-day cooling off period. In that period, President Biden could appoint what is called a presidential emergency board to essentially assess the uh, bo- both sides on the um, rail dispute, um, assess their demands, and then offer recommendations for a framework for an agreement that both sides have under the provisions of the Railway Labor Act, the capacity to reject uh, or accept. Um, and so that's what happened in July. The PEB was appointed. The PEB released its official recommendations in late August. The and rail the PEB is the presidential emergency board um, that Biden appointed in July to try to broker an agreement between the carriers and the unions. Um, when those and Max, uh, Max, sorry, can I just quote from that report, which is something I learned from your reporting it. There's an amazing line in that report. So the presidential emergency board is trying to uh, lay out the respective positions of both sides, the unions and the carriers. And this is what the presidential emergency board says, quote, The carriers maintain that capital investment and risk are the reasons for their profits, not any contributions by labor. So basically saying that the workers have nothing to do 
with their high profits and that all the benefit goes to them because of their brilliant capital investment and risk taking. Yeah, Michael, how did it feel to read that? Oh, it's, it's amazing. I mean, you, you should have seen my, well, I think you did see my uh, article. I wrote all about that to, uh, uh, to Railway Age magazine. Um, yeah, that was a great op-ed that you wrote. And so anyway, uh, yeah, the way I feel on that is that uh, the, the railroads maintained that it was their risk and investment. So uh, I laid out, so those, the, the sums of money that they received in COVID assistance for in bonds given to Union Pacific and these other companies. So was was that free money? Was that considered risk or was that investment? I'm I'm not a Harvard MBA, but I'm I'm just I'm not sure. Was that risk or investment? But bottom line, we all know that this industry doesn't really have as much risk as they think they have because we all know the precedent set they can run the company into the ground through share buybacks. And in the end, big daddy government's just going to bail them out. That's that's what they expect. So <laughs> I, I I don't agree with the risk and investment part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Every every worker that I've spoken to has that line tattooed on their brain verbatim. <laughs> they they all remember it and they'll they'll bust it out. Um, it was such a huge slap to the face, uh, especially when you know we're talking about workers who you know sacrificed mightily during COVID nineteen, and because of the uh, you know precision, precision scheduled railroading regime that they're working under, because of the you know uh, constant staff cuts that the railroad industry has been doing year by year, piling more work onto fewer workers, all of the things that working people on the railroads have had to endure to be told uh, and and written out in a presidential emergency board that they have contributed nothing to the record profits that the railroad industry is seeing is just so disgusting and rightly really pissed off the rank and file and has played a major role in the discontent we've seen play out over the past few months. And just to sort of close the loop on that, so um, people probably know and remember that we were approaching a rail shutdown um, in September. And so, um, you know, basically, like I said, the PEB, the Presidential Emergency Board, released its official recommendations in late August. Those recommendations were immediately and enthusiastically endorsed by the rail carriers, uh, which should tell you a little something about what was in the recommendations. We we don't have time to go through all of it right now. But the carriers were like, yeah, that's great. Let's do it. And the unions, you know, like were, uh, you know, a lot of the membership was really pissed off. And so that triggered, once the recommendations were released, another 30-day cool off period as per the provisions of the Railway Labor Act. And so in September, by mid-September, we were approaching the end of that 30-day cooling off period after which uh, strikes or lockouts could legally happen. And that is when at the 11th hour, a closed-door deal was reached involving Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh, uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, the rail carriers, uh, rail union leaders, so on and so forth. And so that then the new sort of tentative agreement that was reached to um, forestall a rail shutdown in September was then kicked back to the different union memberships, uh, and thus the voting process began. And as of right now, it is uh, four of the 12 main um, unions representing, like I said, over 100,000 workers on the freight rail system in the United States uh, have voted this down. Now, the, the, the media, again, has been getting this, has been really kind of 
disingenuous in the way that they present this because they'll say, oh, eight of the 12 unions have voted to accept this. So a majority of workers have voted to accept. What they're not telling you is that the four unions that have voted down the tentative agreement represent over a majority uh, or represent 55 percent of the rail workers on the railroads. These are some of the biggest unions that have said, screw that. We don't want (laughs) this tentative agreement. We want something better. And so that's what's been happening over the past few months. Um, That is where, you know, we have ended up with this December 9th deadline um, when, you know, a strike could happen again. That is why, as we speak right now on Wednesday, November 30th, the House is um, voting on um, two bills, it sounds like, one to essentially force workers and carriers to accept the tentative agreement that was reached behind closed doors in September, and then a second bill, which may or may not go anywhere, um, that is uh, purported to um, advance like legislation that would secure seven paid workdays for railway workers. So that, in a nutshell, is kind of like how the Railway Labor Act plays into all of this. And so what are the uh, what is Biden proposing? What does Biden want to have happen? I don't think Biden's proposing anything. I don't know that he necessarily even knows much about the issue, because if he did, um, he'd realize what a slap in the face it was to offer three unpaid sick days that you have to plan 30 days in advance and that you can only take on a Tuesday, Wednesday, or a Thursday uh, is kind of what we got. And in exchange for it, we sacrificed basically our entire scheduling system to uh, give to the railroads under. And it's not, we don't even know the full details of it. It was just saying that the railroads will be uh, authorized to negotiate on self-protecting pools and automatic markup. And that's a deep rabbit hole. And I know the public doesn't understand. Just know it would scrap our entire scheduling system that's been around for many, many decades that keeps us rested to the best of our ability. It's what we use to to stay rested. And this scheduling system would be basically tossed out the window uh, with uh, trust me, bruh, from the railroad. That's kind of what it that's kind of what it results. Um, And and something that I I would like to point out as well, it's not mentioned a ton that the sick days are mentioned, but I've really been pushing heavily for the fact that we lost as transportation workers the ability to write off our away from home meals when the tax law changed a few years ago. And this doesn't just apply to railroaders. This also applies to uh, truck drivers that are employees, not, you know, their own business owner operators, but um, it, it applies to airline pilots, it applies to everyone else. When you go out of town for days at a time, you have a very expensive meal expenses, especially now with inflation and meals. Um, so ours has not gone up at least for, uh, and there's different areas. There's uh, not all the railroads are exactly the same on this, but all of them are subpar. And where I'm at as an engineer at Union Pacific, I'm making $12 to be gone for a couple days at a time. And that is the only portion of my, my pay that's not reported as taxable income. The IRS says $60, and I believe it actually is going up again. And we used to be able to write that off to at the end of the year, we could count up how many days we we're gone. And then we could write that off against our income. But when the tax law changed a few years ago, they scrambled decimal points and doubled the standard deduction and eliminated the personal exemption is smoke and mirrors. It, it basically what it was kind of suggesting is that 
only businesses should be able to write off their deductions and that average employees are just too stupid to do their own taxes is kind of what is kind of what I took out of that legislation. And we lost the ability to itemize, which is what we need to do to write off our meals. Um, so right there, we took about a six or seven thousand dollar pay cut right there. This is before this pay increase and this record pay increase that that Biden and the negotiators say say we're uh, they say this agreement was so good for us and the railroad suggests that it's the highest percentage raise that we've received in decades. It still doesn't keep up with inflation and not every portion of our pay went up. Our meal allowance, our non-taxable meal allowance to reimburse us for our expenses is not going up. It's still staying at $12 even after all of this, even though it hasn't gone up since I believe 1993. Well, like, you know, if we're if we're talking about like, how is Biden whiffed so much on this? Right. You know, like why? Why is he how and why is he missing the real picture here? I think this is a great object lesson. Right. In how we understand labor disputes in this country. Right. Because we've seen all week. Right. The media framing has been like, oh, you know, catastrophic rail shutdown on the horizon. Everyone's citing an industry, you know, generated figure, which is a rail shut down would cost the U.S. economy $2 billion uh, a day. Uh, and everyone from CNN to Fox to MSNBC keeps recycling that talking point. And yet not a single one of those pundits can ever even offer a guess as to how much uh, it is costing the U.S. economy to sustain the greed-driven business practices of the companies that own the railroads. We're not talking about how much people are already paying for a crisis that is already here that has been caused by these greedy businesses that have essentially, as I said, Let's take a step back. Let's talk about like the situation that Biden and his presidential emergency board did nothing to address that workers have been telling me and anyone who will listen all year. Right. The the, the railroads have been in a self-induced crisis that has been decades in the making. In 1980, there were over 40 major railroad companies in this country. And now there are just seven and they're soon to be six. So corporate consolidation has been on steroids over the past four decades. In that same time frame, there used to be over 500,000 workers on the freight railroads in 1980. And over four decades, the railroads have slashed that down to around 130. And this is another thing that the rail carriers won't tell you now that they're complaining about a labor shortage, they can't hire enough people, yada, yada, yada. Well, the Collectively, the major carriers have eliminated over 30% of their workforce since 2015. Like Michael Paul said, they can't blame this on COVID. They have been doing this to themselves. Why? Because this is what railroaders call the cult of the operating ratio. It is what happens when you take an essential infrastructural system uh, like the railroads and financialize it and turn it into just a money generating widget for Wall Street that leads to you know business practices that um, are destroying the supply chain, right? Everyone is pissed off here, right? Shippers uh, who have no choice but to use the freight railroad. So they're essentially locked in a monopsony. They are the ones paying like the higher prices that railroad companies are jacking up on them. They're passing those costs onto the consumer. This is what I mean when I say you're already paying for the damage these companies have done to the supply chain because they are price gouging their own customers because they have nowhere else to go at the same time that they are dramatically slashing their workforce and 
turn and driving workers into the ground, working them longer, harder. Um, these these trains have been getting longer and heavier and more unwieldy over that same time period I discussed. The rail the, there used to be like five people working on these um, trains, and now they're like two. And the railroads have been trying to get it down to one. Imagine how dangerous of a situation that is that they have created. There are stories of derailments that break like you know almost every week, and some leak hazardous chemicals like chlorine that could wipe out an entire town if it's not contained immediately, right? This is what precision scheduled railroading has actually meant. It is meant, um, you know, like reducing operating costs while increasing stock buybacks. And as I said, the railroads are not hurting. They're making more money than they ever have. Union Pacific in 2021 had its most profitable year ever. And, the, and all the other companies are raking in billions and billions of dollars in profits, and they are citing increased fees that they are, um, you know, price gouging their shippers on. They're they're citing, um, you know, reduction of operation costs, which translates to people like Michael Paul having to work longer and harder and having no ability to actually take time off. Because that's the other thing I'll say, then I'll shut up is like, that's where I started reporting on this back in, in January for the real news. I had learned that 17,000 railroad workers at BNSF Railway, which is owned by Berkshire Hathaway, which is owned by billionaire Warren Buffett, I learned that they had had their strike blocked by a U.S. district court. And they were prepared to strike over the implementation of this draconian new points-based attendance policy that Michael mentioned earlier. But the judge said, I can't let this go through. It would cause irreparable damage to the supply chain, yada, yada, yada. So I started reporting on that. And I, then workers started telling me, like, you need to understand what this says about the situation writ large. Because why are the railroads instituting these draconian attendance policies that everyone hates that's leading people to quit in record numbers? Because, as Michael said... You know, in the past, you could say like, you know what, I'm marking off uh, whoever's behind me in the pecking order is going to step up and take my assignment. They can't really do that anymore because the railroads have chopped all the reserves. And so when you do that, when you eliminate that much of your workforce in order to jack up profits, it's not like they've been hurting and had to cut back and tighten the belt. They've done this to themselves. So when you end up in that situation and you basically have to shackle workers to their workstations through these draconian attendance policies because there are no reserve people to to really like pick up when other people want to mark off. And so it's this real vicious sort of cycle driven by greed that the Biden PEB has done nothing to address. It's done nothing to it like tell the rail carriers what you're doing in the supply chain is bad. It's wrong. It's bad for workers. It's bad for consumers. It's bad for the economy. They've just essentially rubber stamped this whole practice. And so if we go through the way that we're going now, the rail carriers are going to take it as a sign that they can keep doing what they're doing and we are all going to be worse off for it. Max, you mentioned the uh, media coverage, the panic yeah. that is being spread about workers asking for sick leave. So I just want to go to a, a clip. This is a oh, yes. compilation of just one day from CNN covering the issue of, of uh, railway workers asking for sick leave and warning about what that could do to the economy. A rail strike is one of the most disruptive and expensive things that can happen to an economy. A rail shutdown or strike would disrupt supply chains. A strike means food prices could skyrocket. Many experts are saying would be an economic catastrophe. That could mean a big shortage and massive price hikes. Even gas prices could increase. And it also could cost the economy a billion dollars within the first week. That would cripple the economy. I'm not setting aside the concerns of your members, but are you and your members willing to stop the rails, in effect, uh, and, and accept those costs to the U.S. economy? Do you believe a strike is worth it? 
if it cripples the U.S. economy and costs up to $2 billion a day. More than $2 billion per day. Is it worth it? And on top of all of that, the holidays are right around the corner. So a little less than a month right before Christmas here. Especially right before the holidays. President Biden warning if that happened, it would devastate the economy if we had a strike like that. So joining me now to talk about this and a lot more is Bank of America. It's Brian Moynihan, chairman and CEO, one of the biggest banks in the world. I wonder what the Bank of America guy thought. (laughs) (laughs) Unbelievable, man. Unbelievable. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was wonderful. So informative. I learned a lot. And what's cool to hear when you listen to the story is just the broader implications that this is not just about, you know, one sector, that this is about, you know, as both of them are speaking about, the ability of workers across sectors across the country to be able to collectively bargain and stand up for their rights. And uh, if a situation like this can't compel Democrats to stand up for workers, then what will? So really, really interesting. And uh, I look forward to following this and seeing what happens next, because this could become something really big. Yeah, really appreciative of their for their generosity and giving us all this time to talk about this really important issue. All right. So for more, you can go to usefulidiots.substack.com to become a useful idiot and get bonus content. And we'll see you next week. Including our Thursday throwdowns, which you're really going to want to see. In fact, Aaron, let's give them a little sneak preview of what they'll get from the Thursday throwdown. Welcome to this week's Thursday Throwdown. Yes, the Thursday Throwdown is your midweek dose of media madness. And we're going to begin this week with the World Cup. That's going on, a lot of excitement. And uh, because, though, you know, you have the U.S. there and countries like Iran there, it's, of course, very politicized. And this week saw a match between the U.S. team and the Iranian team. The U.S. won uh, by a score of one to nothing. And on corporate TV in the U.S., there was one recurring theme, which is that Iranians want their own team to lose to the U.S. uh, because somehow that would solve all of Iran's problems and because somehow the U.S. only stands up for Iranian freedom. So for Iran's freedom to happen, they have to lose to the U.S. soccer team. So this is uh, Bloomberg's Bobby Gosh speaking on MSNBC. Remarkably, already I'm seeing reports out of Iran that Iranians are celebrating the American victory. That is something I would not in a million years have expected to see in my own lifetime, which tells you that they hate their regime and they hate the team that represents that regime even more than they were taught to hurt, to hate the United States. And over on CNN, a similar message. This is uh, correspondent Don Riddell, who spoke to one Iranian soccer fan who said that he was rooting for Iran's team to lose. And so this is uh, Don Riddell's response. Political games. Anna, imagine that. He's come all the way to the World Cup. He's a proud Iranian football supporter. And tonight he is cheering for his team to lose. He also told me that he doesn't feel safe in this crowd. He wouldn't give me his last name. And during our interview, other Iranian fans were filming our interview and he felt very threatened and intimidated by that. He said that was proof that pro-regime elements are in this crowd and they're keeping a very, very close eye on what the demonstrators and the protesters are saying all the way here in Qatar. So wouldn't he not want to be on CNN? 
Yeah, <laughs> that's the thing. If he really was that scared of uh, the Iranian government, going on CNN is probably not a good right. idea. Which I'm not making light of what the Iranian government has done. I'm not suggesting that there aren't people who are afraid of their governments, including the Iranian government. But it does seem like a weird thing to do to to appear on CNN while also or, or it seems like a weird thing for the CNN reporter to do, which is show him and then say how scared he is for uh, of being exposed. Like, well, maybe for his own protection, you shouldn't have released that footage. Yes. Like this man is scared for his life as a result of the television appearance that I've just right. given him Yeah, uh, on purpose. And I had the choice not to. Yeah. Look, and also just this idea of like politicizing the game. And look, I'm sure there are Iranians who were cheering for their team to lose. You can there's millions of people sure. uh, from Iran around the world. I'm sure these people um, were sincere, but would they ever find someone from the U.S. who's rooting for their team to lose because they don't like their government's policies on whatever and put that on CNN? No. Probably not. Um, Everything that can be politicized gets politicized if it's being used against a bad guy government that the U.S. is trying to overthrow. That's true, yeah. And, uh, you know, the the subtext of the Iran game is is that, um, you know, like the Iranian team had to, I think, uh, give up some sponsorship or something because of U.S. sanctions. It's just strange to be have a team have a game between two countries where one country is trying to actively overthrow the other the other country's government. It's just a little bit awkward. And to the extent there's a political element to these games, I think that's what should be discussed, mm. not whether or not some fans from one side uh, want to see their side lose because of uh, their own dissatisfaction with the government. Yeah. There are, of course, people who are critical of the government who still want their team to win. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure there are some Iranians who are suffering under U.S. sanctions who really want the U.S. team to lose because that would be some sort of symbolic victory for them. Right. But uh, we can't listen to them. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of sanctions, another government heavily targeted by U.S. sanctions is Venezuela. And recently, the Biden administration has decided to ease off the chokehold just a little bit and let the oil giant Chevron operate once again in Venezuela, in part because yeah. the Biden administration needs the energy supply as a result of its proxy war in Ukraine. So, right, And to watch more of our Thursday Throwdown, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Thank you.